God's Word, we're going to be in the, math, uh, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter 9, or if you want to turn on your device. Matthew's one of those guys that we really don't have a whole lot of information about. We don't really see where he started any churches or anything like that. He was probably a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. But as far as you know, making an impact and doing missionary work and things like that, he's really not the guy. You'd have to go to other disciples to do that. Matthew's story is kind of cool. His, his background is, is he was a tax collector, and the way I understand that, it was sort of like a small time gangster. I mean, he literally had his hands in everybody's pocket. Uh, and nobody really could like the tax collectors because they sat in the booth there. Like if you've ever been to a toll road, they had a booth there before you go into town. And Matthew, one of the tax collectors, would have been there. And let's say you come into town for a feast. You're there in town in Jerusalem. Um, and you, on the books, your tax says $100. Matthew would say, hey, uh, 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 Chris, you owe 150 shekels. So you'd pay me 150 shekels, I'm pocketing the 50 shekels, I'm paying the government 100 of, of what you just paid. And actually, kind of I said, he was kind of a gangster. Uh, he, he was, that's just the way he rolled, and, and people didn't like him uh, because they knew that they were shysters. They knew that they were sketchy people, and the people who, the people who hung out with him were sketchy people. And uh, one day, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, uh, St. Peter's going there with him, they pay the tax. So Peter gives the tax, and then Jesus gives an invitation to the tax collector and says, hey, dude, come follow me. This is what the Bible says in Matthew 10, 1 through 3. Um, this is how Matthew would have described himself, okay? So Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, and this is how he describes himself about 30 or 40 years after the fact. Matthew was written about 30 or 40 years after the crucifixion, the ascension of Jesus. So he says, Jesus called his 12 followers together and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and sickness. These are the name of the 12 apostles. Simon, the one also called Peter, his uh, bro Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brothers John, uh, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, and uh, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Now, I can tell you right now, to me, the Bible is not a work of man. Uh, because a good editor would have looked at Matthew's paper and said, you know, let's leave that part out. Let's just say you were Matthew the guy. Uh, we don't want people to get the wrong understanding of your past. You've passed that. You've overcome that. You've succeeded over that. You're victorious over that. That's in your past. Don't bother putting that down, Matthew. But the reason why I believe that Matthew did that even 40 years after the fact is because of this. He knew where he came from, and he knew the grace of God that had saved him from out of the mess that he was in. So he never forgot the fact of where he came out of. He never forgot his past. It didn't shackle him. It didn't hold him in chains. It's just he remembered, hey, if it wouldn't have been for this guy, Jesus, that changed my life, I would still be the schmuck out there ripping people off as they come into town. Uh, so to me, this tells me that if this was a work of man, they would have edited that out, but not God, because what God was trying to show us is God can use us no matter what your past is, well, no matter what my past is. The grace of God can still use us. Uh, you know, if I was mad, I would have put, you know, I'm, I'm Matthew, one of the apostles. Matthew, one of the OG disciples. You know, one of the original 12. But that's not what he does. He just keeps it real. Uh, which brings me to the point is, what's your past? What would you say that would stop you from moving forward in your service in the kingdom? What, what do you regret? What chapters in your book do you wish you could take out or at least do a heavy edit on? You know, what is it in your past that you're saying, man, there's no way God will use me? How could I serve in the church with this in my background? But the fact is, God's grace covers you. God's grace saves you. And he'll use whatever you did in your past to help in your current ministry. He will use your past life 
to help you in your ministry because he takes what the enemy meant for evil and he'll use it for good. You remember what Matthew did as a, for a living before he followed Jesus? What did he do? He was a tax collector, kind of a shyster. Uh, now, if you were a tax collector, let's kind of look in our mind like a bookie. Uh, he knew everybody. He knew what everybody owned. He knew where everybody lived. He knew what everybody's bank account was. He knew how much to tax people. He knew whose boy was who and whose daughter was married to who. This is the guy that knew everything about everybody. He had attention to detail, uh, very meticulous in his fact gathering. And that is the perfect guy to write the book of Matthew. Somebody who knew the facts. In fact, when you look at the book of Matthew, there's more detail and more accuracy and more precision in Matthew's gospel than any other. Well, I wonder why that would be. Because when Jesus saved Matthew, this was in his past. He knew who owed him money. He knew where they lived. He knew what the essentials were. And so when Jesus saved him, he said, Matty, you got a great memory. you got a good detail. you got a good eye for detail. I'll use that in the kingdom of God. Go pick up your pencil. Because I've got a book for you to write. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. Now, church, I'm going to be honest with you. I wanted to preach 37, verse 37 and 38 in this passage so bad I couldn't stand it. Because I thought, man, we're one week before the ministry fair. I'm going to hammer these people. Let them know that the fields are ripened to harvest, but the laborers are few. Pray to the one uh, who sends the workers. I was going to do that. But I, I couldn't get past 36, I'm going to be honest with you. So 36 is where I'm going to camp. I'm going to go back to 37 and 38, but I'm just going to brush on it because 36 is what knocked my socks off. Jesus traveled around through all the cities and all the villages of that area, northern Galilee, up by the Golan, uh, Golan Heights, up on the northern, northern end of the, of the Sea of Galilee, uh, by Gerizim, by Nazareth, Cana, stuff like that. Jesus traveled around through all the cities and the villages of that area, teaching in the Jewish synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, preaching the gospel. And whenever he went, and wherever he went, he did two things. He healed people, and he healed every sort of disease. Verse 36. And what... Pity Jesus felt for the crowds, or what compassion Jesus felt for the crowds, that he came because their problems were so great, and they didn't know what to do, and they didn't know where to go. They were helpless. They were like a sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw this, the Bible just tells us that his heart broke. It affected him physically, the way he saw the way we live our lives. He saw our brokenness. He saw our disease. He saw our messed up families. He saw our messed up psyches. He saw our messed up mental health. He saw our messed up spirit. He saw our messed up relationships. He saw it all. He saw people dealing with cancer and epilepsy. He saw people dealing with all kinds of physical infirmities, not having enough money at the end of the month. He saw it all. I read this passage and I thought, man, this is, this is, this is going to be great passage. 37, 38, workers going to get them involved. And then I look at 36 and then I thought, 36, verse 36 is what 37 and 38 are built upon. It's what gives 37 and 38 their power. It's what gives verse 37 and 38 about the fields ripened to harvest, but where are the labors? Verse 36 is the reason why we get to verse 37 and 38. Priest, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll tell you. When you study the Bible, you have to look uh, I, again, I wanted to preach verse 37 and 38, but what you have to do when you look at a scripture verse, you look at the several verses ahead of it and the several verses below it so you can put it in the context. Who is written to? Who is the audience? What's it mean? Because if you don't do that, you can take one verse and you can make the Bible say literally anything you want. But to be on the up and up, what you do is you take the whole idea. You take the whole context so you can see what's going on. And so when I saw 37 and 38, but I took it in the light of all the other context around it, uh, chapter 8 and 9, it changes things. Uh, when you study the Bible, you discover the overall teaching and the meaning of the verse. I read, verse, I read chapters 8 and 9, I've got to be honest with you, blew my mind. 
I mean, it just flat blew my mind. There's two chapters there in Matthew where there are no fewer than nine different miracles. And here's some of those miracles. Uh, he touched a guy who was blind, a guy who was mute, a guy who was paralyzed. Uh, there was some, some woman that he raised from the dead. Uh, you got the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, there was a paralysis, uh, there was a paralyzed man that he gives, uh, that he lets walk. There was a, there was a woman, uh, who had, a terribly, tr- uh, problematic menstrual cycles. And Jesus healed her of that issue. Uh, there was one more. Oh yeah. He raised the dead. He raises the dead. So in these two chapters, man, there are a crazy amount of miracles. But this is what was happening. Jesus was kind of going on his 33 A.D. tour of the northern Israel. And he's going from town to town. He's going from Bethany to Kerizim to, to, uh, to Capernaum. He's going to all these little cities. And when he comes in there, people bringing out their sick. They're bringing, apparently bringing out their dead. Uh, bringing out their sick. Bringing out those who are, who are, who are messed up. The, you know, the dead, the blind, the lame, you name it. They're bringing them out to Jesus. He does this thing, then he goes to the next town. This is what happens. It's sort of like a Grateful Dead show or a fish show. You, you catch up with Jesus here. Well, let's follow him. Let's go to the next town. They go to the next town. He does all the cool stuff again. So the people from the first town and then the people from this town, well, they follow the band out of town. And they just, they keep growing. And I can imagine it must have been like a festival thing. There were people selling Jesus merch. And uh, maybe Judas had a side hustle going on. If you, want to, if you want five minutes alone with Jesus, if you give me a $20 bill, I'll go back here and hook you up. So I kind of imagine that that was, that was kind of the deal. There was about a, a group about the size of Chester following Jesus around from time to time. Towns that might have only had 300 people, they swell to 5,000 in a day when Jesus shows up. It's a good crowd. Preach where you get that from. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Matthew 8, 1. Large crowds followed Jesus as he came to the hillside. Where did they come? They just came from that whole tour. They just came from that whole tour, from town to town to town, and they're worthy. That makes sense. That's what's going on. Jesus would go teach in the village to village. People would follow him. Everywhere Jesus went, this is what he saw. Blind people, deaf people going through divorce, people going through adultery, people going through all kinds of things. Everywhere he went, you know what he saw? Hurting people. He saw people going through cancer. He saw people going through brokenness, addiction. They had wine. He saw people going through all kinds of stuff. And, and when he saw that from town to town, the story was the same. Different faces, same problems. Different faces, same situations. And he looked at them. And there's one of my favorite Beatles songs, uh, Eleanor Rigby. I look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? I got a feeling that that might have been the song that was in Jesus' head. Because everywhere he went, there was lonely, broken people. Every town. He gets to the end of his tour and he looks back on them. And he, he, he is Jesus. He, he, he's, he, he is God in the flesh. And, but yet he's, he's breathing our air and he's walking our sod. I, this is the first time that God in the flesh has seen just how hard it is to be a human being. Oh yeah, he created us, but now he's, he's in the mess with us. He's in the sewer pit with us. Now he's in the trenches. Now he knows what it's like to have somebody say, you know what, I don't like you and you wear funny clothes. He now knows what it's like to be made fun of or rejected. He now knows what it's like to have people back away from him. Everywhere Jesus went, he saw hurting people. Here's an interesting concept. 
when we think of God, we think of God, you know, sitting on the celestial throne in heaven, and he's, he's God. God. But when we think about Jesus becoming flesh, Jesus was flesh like you and me. He was a person. He enjoyed cookies and cold drinks and sunny days and things like that. He was, he was human. When he was God, could he hug people? When he was God in heaven, could he touch people? I don't know. I look in the Old Testament, and there was about five different occasions where the Bible says God touched people. And they were basically prophets. There was Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, Elijah, and I think there was one more, and I can't think. There was one more. But every time he touched them, it was like for lips. Isaiah's in the temple, and he says, uh, touch my lips, for I come from a people of unclean lips, and touches his lips. Every time in the Old Testament God touches somebody, it's either for strength or power or repentance. It was a unique thing. We get to the, the New Testament, Jesus is touching people like his daddy, but it's a different reason. He touches people no matter where he goes, which to me, if, if this is the first time that God physically touches people, not, you know, yeah, I know he creates all of us and all these things, but man, he's in the trenches with us. He's slapping high fives with us while we're bloody and torn up from the battle we just went over. Now God is in there with us. And he says, okay, I see all this. Now I get it. Now I understand why it's so hard. In the Old Testament, he touched people differently than he did in the New Testament. Oftentimes, Matthew, by the way, tells us that this was kind of Jesus' M.O. He liked to touch people. I think that Jesus was probably a hugger. He would have gotten in trouble with people today, all right? This is what the Bible says, Matthew. Again, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus reached out his hand, and what did he do? He touched this old boy that had leprosy. Leprosy was like a skin disease, like it's like a psoriasis or dermatitis on roids. Uh, eats away the flesh. Jesus, what did he do? He touched the dude. Uh, you go down in Matthew chapter 8, verse 15. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus, but when Jesus touched her, the fever left her, and she got up and prepared a meal for them. He touched. It's not the only time. You go down to Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 through 25. There's, there's, a, there's an element there, a, a layer that everybody knew Jesus touched people. Not an inappropriate touch, not weird touch. He just touched people. This is what a rabbi said. His family member's sick and he goes to Jesus. He says, hey, as he was saying this, the rabbi of the local synagogue came and worshipped him. My little daughter's just died, Jesus. But you can bring her back to life again if you only come in. I'm not feeding you a line of bull. I really am not. If you come to my house and just touch her. When the crowd was finally outside, Jesus went in there where the little girl was and was lying. And he touched her, took her by the hand, and she jumped up and was all right. Remember what I told you about that concept. Before God became a human, what if he hadn't personally experienced what it was like to physically touch or physically hug? But we, know what it, but we know what it's like to be touched. We know what that's like. So what we see is Jesus coming into our world, rubbing shoulders with average Joes and Jonitas like you and me, uh, who sees the way we live, who see the junk that we go through, all the tears that we cry, all the heartache, losing your mom, uh, losing, losing body parts, losing your sanity, losing your kids, losing your job, losing your money. He saw all that. So how did God respond? Did he blame us? Is he mad at us? Is he ticked off at us because we, you know, we don't live a faithful life? Is he, is he angry at us because we dropped the ball? Is he angry at us because we have confusion questions or because we're angry at him? And, and I just described feelings that every single one of us in this house have, have had. So is God mad at us? He saw all this? 
We can't whitewash it. He's already been here. He's an eyewitness to how hard life is. Is he ticked off? Nope. Verse 36. Man, what pity he felt for the crowds. What compassion. What loving pity. Because their problems were so great and they didn't know what to do or or where to go for help. They were like a sheep without a shepherd. Hey, church, God knows that we don't know what we're doing. God knows that we are like stupid sheep without a shepherd. He knows that we don't have it all. We don't, even, we don't even know where to go to look for help. And here's the thing. He's not ticked off at us. He's not angry with us. He's not, he's not furious at us. He, don't want, he doesn't want to put us on a train and get us out of town. He says, man, I feel sorry for you. I don't know about you. That kind of makes me feel good. It makes me feel real good. Jesus is saying, I know how hard it is to live in that place. He felt sympathy, compassion, love and pity. And compassion is a hard word for me to get through in the Greek as far as the translate. Because the word that's used for compassion literally means bowels or intestines. Yeah, that's a really good Sunday morning talk right before lunch. Um, so I thought, well, man, what the, what, what's that mean? Bowels or intestine. It's going to be hard because we don't, we don't associate the seat of emotion with our bowels anymore. They did 2,000 years ago. You know, we say, I love you with all my heart. Man, if somebody says, oh, I love you with all my bowels, that's not that impressive. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to act. But you're going to get this here in a second. Have you ever, you ever hurt so bad that your stomach hurts? There you go. That's it. You've been so upset, it affects your bowels. That's what it means. Now, that same word, the, um, there's a word that's used. I'll, I'll throw it up here for you so you know I'm not doing this bait and switch on you. Uh, Matthew 9, 36. The, the word I highlighted there is the word for compassion. And that's where Jesus looked at all the crowds, all them people, and I felt pity for them. That's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. It's a story that Jesus told about the prodigal son. The son had uh, said, hey, old man, give me my inheritance. I want to go out to Vegas. I want to spend it on wine and women and waste the rest. And he does. He runs out of money, winds up eating pods in a pig trough, which is your, if you were a Jew, that's a no-no. But he's down there eating them cobs, and he says, man, if I could just go back home to my old man, maybe get a job working as a farmhand, maybe that's all I could do. And all this time, the old man's back there at the, at the, uh, at the farm, and he's praying for his son. He come back home. So this is what the Bible says when, when, the, young boys, when the young boys realizes that he made the wrong decision, and he's got to swallow his pride and go back home. The old man's on the front porch. So he returned home to his daddy. And while the prodigal son was still a long distance away coming up the driveway, his daddy saw him coming and he was filled with loving pity. That is the same word that's used in Matthew 9 to describe Jesus' compassion for the people. It's the word that's used in Luke 15.20 to describe the father's compassion for the prodigal son coming down the road. We can understand that more. So when Jesus looked at broken humanity, flawed humanity, prodigal humanity, He looked at him and said, Man, what? I want to help you. I want to rescue you. Because I know this place is tough. I know that it's arduous. I know that it's difficult. I know that it's 
full of things that can kill you and depress you and make you and hurt you. I want you to know I'm not mad at you. I love you. There's that feeling Jesus had when he was here in Matthew 9. It was a visceral, gut-wrenching, emotional response that is so strong. Jesus was physically moved by our pain. Joe, when you lost Brian, he was moved by your pain. When you lose your job, he's moved by your pain. He's not angry. He's not ticked off. He feels it. It means that Jesus saw the actual mess we lived through down here, and he wasn't disappointed in us. He wasn't let down by us for not meeting some hope or his expectation. It made him physically ill. It made him emotionally and decisively have a loving reaction when he saw our lives, our lives of brokenness and questions and anger. And the, the greatest manifestation of that reaction to what he saw was the cross, but that's not the only place he did that. That's not the only way he's reaching out to a broken humanity. That's not the way that he's, he's reaching, that's not the only way he's reaching out to those who are in recovery or going through setbacks or have abuse or, 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 or checking account issues or grade issues or confusion, frustration, brokenness. The cross isn't the only way he's given us uh, to, to be ministered to. It's the only way he's given us for salvation, but the rest of the stuff. You know, what would happen if we tried to see people the way Jesus sees people in Matthew 9, 36? What if when we saw people, we didn't judge them? We didn't say, oh, you made bad decisions. <laughs> Live with it. Bro. Man, what if we had pity on people and compassion? What if we looked at people, instead of getting mad at them, we, we, we just kind of said, well, I, wonder what they're, I wonder what they're going through that would make them like that. What would happen if we saw Jesus? What would happen if we saw with Jesus' eyes? That would look like us not being passive in ministry, but us being active in ministry. We wouldn't be remotely uh, active in ministry, but we would be engaged in ministry. That looks like denying ourselves, taking up our cross and submitting to Jesus. It looks like us following Jesus wherever he goes. Um, and it's in that whole context that Jesus goes to 37. And by the way, this is a seven-page sermon. I'm on page six. Stay with me. I'm going to land the plane. I haven't even got to verse 37 yet. But I want you to, I want you to get Jesus. I want you to get in Jesus' head. He sees all these broken people, and he's not ticked off, and he's not angry. He, he's not saying, well, why didn't somebody else take care of him? It just breaks his, it breaks his heart. And he says, man, i got to do something about this, and I can't do it by myself. By the way, Jesus was one person. I can't do it. Verse 37. Guys, the harvest is so great, and the workers are so few, he told his disciples. So pray to the one in charge of the harvesting and ask him to recruit more workers for his, for his harvest field. Number one, this was the first question that came stringing off the page. Why does God care about me to begin with? Why does he care that I'm getting cared for? Why does, he, why does he have compassion for me? Why does he have pity for me? I haven't done anything for him. He doesn't need me. There's nothing from my hands that, that he needs. So why does he even care 
if the harvest is ripe. Why, why doesn't he just let it die on the vine? One word, compassion. He loves us. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. And if I could explain my God, he wouldn't be much of a God. I don't know why he loves me, but he does. So I'm going to deal with that. But the second thing I'm going to look at is this. It wasn't long until after Jesus' followers, I want you to know, it wasn't long until after Jesus told his followers, guys, you need to pray that, we need to pray that the Father brings us more workers because, man, there's just so much going on down here. There's people down here laying in the floor. They're bringing in 20, 30 people a day. I can't do it all. They're calling me down here at Garrison to go down there and take care of them boys. They're just causing all much trouble with demon possession. I've got this woman over here who's got an issue that I've got to deal with. I've got to go over there. Guys, I can't do it all. You need to pray for volunteers. You need to pray for workers. Crazy thing. When they begin to pray for workers... And they pray for all the lonely people and all the broken people. They pray for all the Eleanor Rigby's in that town. Or the Earl Rigby's in that town. Hurting for them praying people. They started seeing people the way Jesus did. Look in verse 10. By the way, this is the, this is the very next verse. Where after Jesus has said, hey boys, pray for God, pray for the Father to send more workers. This is the next verse. And by the way, when, when Matthew was written, it wasn't chapter and verses. It was one long letter. So what happens after they started praying? Check this out. Verse 1. Jesus called his 12 followers together and he gave them authority to drive out spirits and heal every kind of sickness. You know what they did? When they started praying to God to send workers, you know what God did? He says, what's wrong with you? What do you got going on? Because right after Jesus says pray for workers, he put those people praying for workers to work. You get, you see that? I'm not making this up, right? You don't like it, I get it. But that's exactly what happened. Jesus is calling followers together under his authority to do the spiritual battle, to go to the spiritual battle for people's hearts. And this is the cool thing about Matthew. I want to come back to him. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. Remember, he's sitting there and he's taking tax money in, making some bank. Uh, got to repair a boat. So he's getting some of this money that's going on. And uh, I want to read this passage to you. This is in Matthew 9, same text. And as Jesus passed forth from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, the tax booth. And he said to him, hey, Matt, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat, uh, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, he's at Matthew's house. Same night, Matthew gets saved. Remember what kind of friends Matthew had? They probably had records. Might have been on a, they might have been on a list, a watch list. Nobody wanted to hang out with Matt except people like Matty. But after Matty meets Jesus, he goes home, cranks up the smoker, and invites all of his flunky, funky friends over. All the other small-time crooks. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at that meal in the house of Matthew, behold, many other funky folks came in, sat down with him and his disciples. Can you imagine what some of the disciples were saying? Can you imagine what they're going to say if people know that we're sitting here eating with these people? We're going to be all over the faith book. And when the Pharisees saw it, 
They said unto his disciples, why does your master eat with these sinners, these lowlifes, these addicts, these recovering people, these trashy people, white trash people, you name it. Why is he eating, with, why is he eating and drinking with all these yellow hammers? And I guarantee you, Matthew had a party. They had uh, hummus and lamb, some Mogan David going on. It was a party. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They who be whole need not a physician, but they who are sick. But go you and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to be righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. Okay, you're saying, Brother Mike, what in the world does this have to do with where you're going today? This is cool. Matthew got saved, got born again, radically transformed by Jesus. And this is the thing I admire about Matthew. He didn't start no churches. He didn't go over to India and start churches like Timothy did. But this is what he did. He got saved and he didn't forget his friends. He knew that his friends, nobody else liked him, but he knew that his friends needed Jesus. His lost friends needed Jesus. People he used to cheat the, uh, cheat the public with, they needed Jesus. Church, you may have been walking with Jesus for six months, six years, or 60 years. Don't forget those people in your life who still need him. Don't forget those people in your life that maybe you wrote off. Maybe you flushed them uh, 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 figuratively. Maybe you've cut them off because you're a Christian now and you can't run with them. Don't forget them because they need Jesus too. And what Matthew did is he brought these people and said, Man, you've got to meet this guy that changed my life. You've got to meet him. I'm going to tell you why I think lots... Yeah, I, I think the reason why lots of us don't do this at work or at home is because... We probably don't live right, and we don't act like Jesus very much in front of the people that we work with or the people we run with. Some of you are recently saved, or maybe right now you're getting serious about living the life of a saved person. Your friends are now your mission field. God did not put them in your life by accident. You've got to say, hey, you've got to meet this guy that changed my life. The holdup is, is our life doesn't look changed when we're at work. Or we're in the hallway in between classes. Or when we're online or when we're talking with our friends about other friends. It's hard to act like Jesus when you don't live like Jesus in front of other people. That's going to be a hard pill to swallow. But get to swallowing. It means we're going to have to start living out this stuff that we say we believe no matter what. You might say, Brother Mike, you don't know where I come from. You don't know what I've done at work. Or you don't know what I've done at home. Or you don't know what I've done on the streets. You don't know. Okay. What's your past? What's ugly about it? What chapters would you like to rewrite? Or what chapters would you like to do a hard edit on? I need you to know this. Matthew had a really cruddy past. But it was covered by the grace and the blood of Jesus. And God used him. Church, he'll use you no matter what your past is. And don't be surprised if he uses some of the things you wound up using in the world and use them in the kingdom. He takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good. That's why when we remember Matthew's past, you know why he went into such detail with a roll call, the disciples' name, and why he gave us so much detail in his book. Who's keeping track of who's saying what and where they were. Because God saw Maddie, saved Maddie, and said, Hey, Maddie, you got a good memory. You got a good eye for detail. Now go pick up your pencil. I've got a job for you to do.
Everybody has a pencil. Uh, you talk to a contractor or a builder, and I used to think that, you know, maybe the most important tools of that job would have been a power saw or a table saw or a plumb line or something like that. Uh, but the contractor would tell you that, no, my most important job out here, whether I'm building an 800-square-foot garage or a 3,000-square-foot home or bigger, my pencil is the most important thing I've got. And I said, really? Yeah. He said, because when I start drawing the draft for that 800-square-foot shed or whether I'm drawing a 20,000-foot mansion, it starts with that one pencil. I said, okay. Then what? He said, well, when I get to the job site, what I'll do is I'll, I'll measure every board in that whole building personally, and I'll make sure that my guys do it right. So every board in that house, every beam in that house has a mark from this pencil, this little pencil here. It has a mark. It's touched everything, and it's made a difference. So I said, That's, you get that out from a, of a $1 pencil? And I said, yeah. he said, yeah. I said, well, then what? He says, well, sometimes it gets dull. I said, Okay. I'm amazed by this conversation. And here's the stupid question I ask. What do you do when it gets dull? I'm sure in his spirit he said, well, dummy. When it gets dull, I sharpen it. And then I'm good to go. Okay, Michael. Here we go. You may not be the preacher. You may not be able to teach connect group. You may not be able to play guitar. You may not be able to uh, cook a meal. You may not be able to, uh, to walk very well, to do a pray and go. You might start, there may be things that you can't do or things you think, man, I wish I could do that ministry. That's really, really cool. But can I tell you what? The most important part of building a church is not the power drills. It's not the table saws. It's the pencils. It's touching people in our life. It's touching people in our church. It means that we look through them through the eyes of compassion and pity that Jesus shared. And what if this morning he's saying, Joe, go get your pencil. What if he's saying, Jack, go get your pencil. I've got something for you to do. Oh, but you don't know my past. What if God's saying, no, no, I know your past and that's why I'm calling you. Next week, you're going to come to church, and there's going to be eight or nine tents. And underneath those tents, there will be the ministries of CFBC. You're going to see a Connect Group with Chris. I'm sorry, Celebrate Recovery with Chris. It's a group for people with habits, hurts, and hang-ups. My God Almighty, if we've ever needed a class or a group like that in Randolph County, baby, it's now. But Chris will be out there. Pray and go and Watchmen will be out there. I'll be at that one. Kitchen crew, Donna and Sharon and some of that crew will be out there. Children's Church, Schaefer will be out there. And y'all, what you're going to do, you're going to walk through this thing. I want you to pay attention. Which one of these ministries makes your spiritual gift light flash? What seems appealing to you? There will be audio-visual. That will be by Don and Jane. Connect group be by Tina. Elevator and parking lot be held up by Ken. Coffee wagon. How many of y'all got coffee this morning? That Jama can make a cup of coffee. Student minister be Pam and Rachel. And every one of those groups, you don't have to, you don't have to do, you're not going to sign up for all of them. You're going to sign up for one. But which one will you, will you circle? Which one will you volunteer for six months? You're not married to it. You can make a six-month commitment. Maybe you want to do it again. Maybe not. Maybe you want to do something else. But here's the thing, guys. The harvest is ripe. 
but the laborers are few. The harvest is ripe in Randolph County. It's ripe in Perry County. It's ripe in Jackson County. It's ripe in Madison County. It's ripe in Monroe County. But the laborers are few, church. Um, One in five of you last month gave an hour to ministry. One in five. There's a lot more work than that. We're overworking some people because not everybody's coming on board. The harvest is ripe. So I want you to join me today. Pam, honey, if you'd come up and start playing. I want you to join me today in praying very specifically and especially. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed, this is what I want you to help me pray for. And it's the same challenge that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Would you join me in praying for God to send more workers to First Baptist Church this morning? Would you join me in doing that? And I'm going to tell you what, man, here's the crazy thing, and I just love you enough to be honest with you. Some of you won't do it because you're scared he's going to say, okay, what's wrong with you? If you would, if you have that pencil down to your side, I just want you to kind of put it in your hand. Because I want you to remember Matthew's background and Matthew's mistakes and Matthew's failures. Jesus comes up to him and says, okay, Matty, go get your pencil. I've got a book for you to write. I've got something for you to do. I want you to think of that pencil as something for you to do. It might look like Celebrate Recovery. It might look like Pray and Go. It might look like Children's Church. It might look like Connect Group. It might look like working in the kitchen. It might look like a, it might look working with the students. It might look like giving coffee away on a Sunday morning. It may look like uh, operating an elevator or running the parking lot. Man, I don't know. But I know that he's saying, I need some folks with some pencils. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed and you have that pencil in your hand, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would send workers to CFBC this morning. God, I pray that you would place a passion in our heart to see the people in Randolph County, Perry County, Jackson County. Through the eyes of your compassion. And Lord, if you've asked us to pray for more laborers for that ripe harvest, you've told us to pray for them, so we're going to pray for workers this morning. Team. Lord God, today, I pray for every soul who's going to walk this aisle. I pray for every soul who's going to come forward to pray for workers, much-needed laborers, much-needed volunteers to CFBC. Lord, I pray that people would come alongside and pray for more workers at this church. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, and my team is coming forward to prepare to lead us in an invitation song. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I've given you the challenge this morning. 
I'm not asking you to sign up for anything today. I'm not asking you to do any of that. You'll have an opportunity to do that next Sunday. What I'd like for you to do today is, is pray with me. Pray that God would send more workers to this church. And as we sing, as we sing, I invite each and every one of you to join me in prayer by coming forward. And the thing we're praying for is this. God, send more laborers into this field. Send more laborers to this church. Now, it didn't take but about 10, 20 seconds to say that prayer. I'm not asking you to make a campfire up here and stay here all day. I am asking you to pray with me. I'm asking you to pray with me in such a way where you care enough about this that you're willing to leave your pew and come up to the front and simply say, God, I join with my other brothers and sisters in Christ. We're praying for workers at this church. Almighty God, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this very moment that there would be prayers that are heaped up in a pile right here on this terrestrial ball on earth right now, dear God, as we claim and we are seeking more workers in this field, more workers in this church, more volunteers in this church. Lord, I pray that this would be a, a pivotal moment, a key moment in the life of this congregation. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed. This morning, would you just simply come up and pray for God to send more workers as we sing.